Let me pray, and then we're going to get started. Father God, um, you love us so much that you left us your word. You love us so much that you left us the book of John. Um, Father, I pray today that we understand that uh, these were words that you shared with your disciples because you loved them and you trusted them with the message that could change eternity. And I pray today that we understand that this message is for us too. And that through you, that we have the power to impact eternity for people. Um, God, I pray that we understand that these words um, have power and these words are true. Father, for any who are not sure today, I pray that this is the day that it becomes crystal clear. And for any who, who it doesn't become crystal clear, God, I, I just ask that you draw them toward you and closer to you and, and help them understand that we are always going to have questions, but that you answer the questions that matter. Thank you for coming to live and coming to die. Um, and thank you for these words, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um. I like, you know, this is what's funny. I'm a rule follower. I don't know if we've met. It's nice to meet you. Um, It's so hilarious, Becky, that, you know, remember, like, last year we were like, we need everybody to stay right here. And and everybody, and y'all, like, every week y'all are, like, spreading and spreading and spreading. I'm just going to warn you, my neck doesn't always work, so if I don't look at you, I know you're there. I see you in my periphery. Um, I'm just glad you're here. I'm glad you're comfortable. We're glad, no matter where you sit. I'm glad you're here. Um, this week, we looked at John 14, 15, and a little baby bit of 16, didn't we? We covered some ground. Um, as we started this, as we started looking at this, this text, the thing that kind of kept coming to me over and over was this reminder that Jesus is giving them something to remember. He's giving them something to remember because he knows what's coming, even if they don't fully understand it yet. And he knows... I'm not going to be here face-to-face anymore. Anybody ever, this is so hard, but if you ever had the gift, I'm going to call it a gift, of getting to sit bedside with someone who knows they're taking their last breath. The things that come out of their mouth aren't about um, grocery lists, are they? They're not about the inbox that's not completed, are they? They're the things that matter. And this is what we're looking at with Jesus is he's got His 11 now, because remember, Judas has just left the room, and so now he's hunkered down with his 11, and he's still in the upper room, and he's basically taking their faces and saying, I'm giving you something to remember because I'm about to be gone. When I think about that, I think about the fact that something I've learned over the last few years, and I think it kind of started with, um, well, it started in John, but I think it really kind of came to fruition in the book of Psalms, is that faith can be defined this way, in my opinion. Faith is remembering Faith is remembering. Essentially, when we think about how hard it is to believe in the unseen, oftentimes the only way we can do that is to define it by what we have experienced or what we have seen or what we have heard, right? People have asked me so many times, how can you believe in a God who allows bad things to happen? And you know what my answer is? How can I not? Because I have seen and witnessed and heard and watched firsthand as God has done things. And that's where my faith gets strength. Faith is remembering. And so he's basically doing the same thing to his disciples. He's going to give them something to remember. I think about Joshua 4, not because I just like know everything about the Bible, because I promise you I do not, but I love the story in Joshua 4. And if, if you do have like the Old Testament memorized, which I'm sure most of you do, you know 
that the book of Joshua and this certain chapter in Joshua 4 is when he's leading God's people across the Jordan, the River Jordan. And what's happening, what's weird about that is that God parts the waters for them to walk across. But this is what's my favorite part of that story is as they're going across, God says to Joshua, all right, I want you to get your dudes and I want everybody to pick up a rock. And at the time, they were representatives of the 12 tribes. And he said, I want 12 rocks to be picked up from the middle of the Jordan. Remember, it's a river. So gross. They're picking up rocks in the middle of the Jordan. And he says, when you get to the other side, when you get to where I'm taking you, I want you to set them down and I don't want them to stay there. And then the waters are going to come back and everybody's going to look at those rocks from now on. And they're going to look back and they're going to remember what I did for you. And there are these memorial stones that are there. And Joshua says, every generation is going to see those rocks and is going to know what God did. And that's essentially what Jesus is doing. He's leaving memorial stones for his disciples, for the future disciples to remember. And, um, you know, a few years ago, I always talk about my crazy brother. Is my mom here today? Yeah, she is. My sister too. So we've got, we're the normal ones, amen, right? We've got two crazy brothers. They're crazy. They live in Colorado, so they're mountain people. And the craziest of them all is my brother Steve, my older brother. And here's the thing about Steve. He knows every single thing in the world, does he not? He knows everything, or he'll tell you he does. But what he does know everything about are the mountains, and I remember a few years ago when I came to visit, we went hiking, you know, and for me, hiking is really more like, it's just like a nice walk in the nature, you know, but, but we did take some trails that, because he's Steve and he's a mountain man, and he took us on some trails that weren't really clear, you know, like it wasn't like a sidewalk in Lantana, right? So like we're walking and all of a sudden we come across these stacks of rocks. I think I got a couple pictures of them um, and, and things like this, like those are not my pictures, but have you ever done that? Have you ever been on a trail and you've seen those stacks of rocks and you're like, what? is that? Somebody, that's so cute. So what does Chris do? I'm like, oh my gosh, so cute. After I took a cute Instagram picture, of course, I went over and I start to grab it and he goes, don't touch that. And I'm like, what, what, what? He says, don't take a rock off the top of that stack. It's like, it's there for a reason. And you never take rocks from a stack. You leave them there because they're trail markers. And I'm like, I don't even know what well, you're Steve. I'm sure what you're saying isn't true. So I go and do a little research because he's my brother. Well, it turns out he's right. Don't tell him this. Um, these stacks of rocks are called Karens, C-A-I-R-N-S, and they have a purpose. And so I did a little bit of research, and I thought, because I got, then I got obsessed with the idea that when there's a trail and the markings are not clear and you can't, it's not a sidewalk and you can't see where to go, that sometimes there's stacks of rocks that tell you where to go if you know to look for them. And so I found this cool um, blog that talked about hiking, and it says this, with regard to hiking, a Karen is a pile of rocks placed near the trail in lieu of a man-made trail marker, like a sign or a wood post or a tree emblem or painting rocks or anything like that. It's essentially made to mark the trail. Further, they are used on ambiguous trails where hikers have been known to get lost. Staying on a trail marked primarily with Karens can be challenging because they only signal that you are near a trail and they don't necessarily signal the direction the trail is headed. Thus, effectively following them along a trail requires finding the next one in the sequence. And so you come across a Karen and then you got to look for the next one and the next one and the next one. And the cool thing about this is obviously they're just stacks of rocks. So weather comes and life comes and things happen and they get knocked down. And it's, it's the community 
and hikers that actually go on the trails that are the ones that rebuild them. Restoring a cairn is especially important after inclement weather because they get covered up and now nobody knows where to go. Maintaining a cairn is as simple as adding a rock to the top of the pile. And so I think about those trails that we have to hike in this life. And I think about how it's so easy sometimes, right? Like you look at other believers and you're like, it seems so clear to them which way they're supposed to go. How do I not? How is he not talking to me? How is he not sharing with me truths that lead me on this clear path? Well, you know what? Sometimes I think it's a stack of stones. I mean, that's just me. Because I think that he gives us these pieces of truth and pieces of information that allow us to know which way to go. And so as I read through this, that's all I kept thinking was stack the stones, stack the stones. And so he's giving these disciples something to remember. And he's giving us something to remember too. We always want to keep it in context. We want to remember who he was talking to and why he was talking to him. But we want to remember too that he's still speaking to us. Why does he, what does he give them to remember? Four things we're going to go over today that we read in our text. The first is that he wants them to remember to know the way, right? We're going to cover that. Know the way. The second is he wants them to have hope. Have hope in the leaving. Because he's going to make it abundantly clear that he is physically leaving. But he wants them to remain hopeful in the midst of it. The third is that he wants them to remain on the vine, We'll go over that illustration a little bit. And lastly, it's super encouraging, but totally truthful. They will hate you too. Be the through. And I'll explain that. You have to stay awake to the end to understand what that means. But the, he tells them, they're going to hate you. And you got to be ready. So if you haven't opened your Bibles, go ahead and open them to John chapter 14. And let's take a look at um, what he, the sixth I am statement that, that he claims. And he says that, um, he tells us that he's the way. He is the way. Let's set the scene for a second. I mentioned this before, but if you'll remember, Judas is gone now, right? So there's just 11 of them in the room with Jesus, and he's addressing them. Their worlds are about to be shattered. And I know I keep saying this, but we've got to get into the scene and understand the critical nature of what he's sharing with them. He knows what's coming and he's anticipating how devastated they're going to be. They're just dudes. They're like some fishermen and, and like a doctor and some other interesting characters that make up this group of 11. And they're about to be devastated by the loss of their savior and their friend. He's bringing comfort about the present and the future. And so it's important that they understand a few things. I'm going to read through John 14, 1 through 7. And then we're going to break it down just a touch before we move on. He starts in verse 1 by saying this, Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I am going. And then Thomas, who loves Thomas? He is us, okay? Like, I love, I love the fact that I read this and I'm like, oh, Thomas, you know, like, whatever. Are you not listening? And then Philip later, you're like, whatever, Philip. You're not. Guys, they're asking the questions that we all wanted to ask, and they're asking the questions that everybody in the room was probably thinking. They're just bold enough to say it. Okay, I'm off my soapbox. I love Thomas. He says, Thomas said to him, verse 5, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? That's such a thing, right, that we would say. 
And Jesus said to him, and I love how he answers. It's like he waited, right? It's like he waited. He wanted somebody to ask, didn't he? So that he could answer. And he says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And I love this. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. From now on. Well, the couple of things that I want to point out besides the obvious that he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. You know, from the very beginning, he's displaying that servant love again, isn't he? In verse 1, he's more concerned with what's happening to them in spite of what he knows is coming for him. Do you realize that? Like, I would have been a disaster at this moment. I mean, right? Like, I'm like, okay, when's it going to happen? Who's going to come? And what, how's it going to look? And what's going to... I mean, he's Jesus, fully God, fully man, but he's still a man. And he's still not looking forward to it. Don't lose the fact that he's still fully man. I would even say he might be a little nervous and scared. I don't know. I can't speak for Jesus, but I can say that he was a man. And yet, in verse 1, he was more concerned about what they had coming than what he had coming. He then shows us this picture of God the Father. It's, it's interesting because he says, you know, believe in God. And then he says, believe in me, as though those are the same thing and they go hand in hand. Well, Jesus is the proof that God is willing to give us everything, everything, the most valuable thing that God possibly has. Now, remember, God's the God who, like, threw the stars in the sky. He's the God that, that, that threw a rainbow in the sky as a symbol to his people. He is the God that can do anything. He created light just by speaking it. He created man by getting some dirt. And, I mean, don't lose sight of who God is. He could have done anything, but he knew what it took to save us was the thing that mattered the most, and that was sending his son. He gives us a picture of God. In Romans 8.32, Paul puts it like this. He who did not spare his own son, God the Father, didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for all of us. Will he not also give us all things with him? In this moment, we're seeing that there's this beautiful picture of who God is, the Father, who God is, the Son, and then how that relationship comes to fruition in the lives of the believers. He goes on to talk about my father's house. We like that part, don't we? We like to kind of zoom in on that a little bit. Like, what's it going to look like? Who's it going to be? What's the neighborhood going to look like? Well, here's the thing that I think he wants us to understand. It is big enough for everyone. It is big enough for everyone. He died for everyone. He died for everyone. He's saying to his friends in the room right now that men will shut you out. They will shut the doors upon you. But the doors of heaven will never be shut for you. God, that's cool, right? They don't even fully get it yet. He also refers to the fact that he's coming back. Here's the thing. When we look at the Father's house, if you're a believer, it's either this. It's either you're going to die here on earth, and then you're going to go be in eternity with Jesus, or he's going to come down before you die an earthly death. Either way, if you know Jesus, I got good news. That house is, is, is the place that he's preparing for you, just like he was preparing it for his disciples. And then he goes into saying that I am the only way. He answers Thomas. Like I said, I think it's kind of cool because it's kind of like he kind of wanted to wait for somebody to ask the question so that then he could answer the question, right? This I am statement, he's emphatic here. It's clear here. I thought, um, you know, when, when you think about hiking, you think about the Karens, and you think about the stacks of rocks, you know what's, what's kind of a bummer? That there are such a thing as false Karens. And there are people that will stack rocks to try to lead you off the path. There are people that will put, um, put like, um, 
trees and branches across the path of a trail, and they do it so that mountain bikers will wreck or that people will get off course. Or They are doing it for their own purposes because they don't like you being on that path. It's a thing. It's unfortunate. And you're like, who would do that? Well, the world does it all the time to us. All the time. So how do we know? How do we know what's real and what's not real? Um, it's, it's, it's always, it's always seems so simple, but I think it really, really is because I think the gospel is simple. We make it messy and complicated. Amen. But really what the truth is, is we say, how do I know what's false and how do I know what's real? Well, I hold it up next to what I know is real. And I know that this is true. And so when I hold it up next to that, that's how I know if I'm taking the right path. Sometimes it's not as clear as that. And that's where we get down on our knees and pray, Lord, your will, not mine. Just don't make it hurt too much, right? Some truths are hard. Sometimes faith in God, being just and good, becomes real trust, right? And I think the disciples were facing that. All right, this is where it gets real. All the times, you don't know best. He knows best. All the time, my way is not better than his way. His way is best. And does my life reflect that I believe in his way or do I believe in my way? You know, when you think about Thomas and you think about Philip, I want, to cons- I want you to consider something. They, you know, we always hear doubting Thomas, doubting Thomas. Well, hey, I want to encourage you on something. I think this is true. Um, doubt is not the opposite of faith. It's not. If you read some of this stuff and you have some doubts and some questions, awesome. I love that. I love that. If I read all this, I'm like, yep, yep, this makes sense, perfect sense, perfect sense. I don't feel like that's valid because I don't feel like I'm really digging into the I don't know. Sometimes there's going to be things that you're not going to know. That's why God is so much bigger than we are. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. And Thomas was not less faithful because he asked the questions that we all wanted to know. Amen? Well, the next stone, essentially, that Jesus leaves them with is that he wants them to have hope. He wants them to have hope. And I love um, the idea, have hope in the leaving. Have hope in the fact that I'm going away. Not hope now. It's real easy to have hope and faith in something that you can see and touch and feel. I shouldn't say easy. Not always easy. Easier. But he's telling them we need to have hope in the leaving. Because in this hour of loss, he's going to comfort them with hope. And here's how. He's going to share with them what the leaving will bring. Okay, what the leaving will bring. If you look in chapter 14, he goes down and it starts in in verse 12. And he begins with the first thing that his leaving brings, and that is greater works. Greater works. Verse 12 goes like this. Truly, truly, I say to you. Do you guys have that memorized by now? Like, that's the one thing I do have memorized. I'm like, okay, I got to listen. Listen up. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Do you think they had big question marks over their head in that moment? Like, how are we going to do greater works with you gone? Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. We're going to stop and clarify a couple of things. Um, That verse 14 is one of those verses that a lot of times people take out of context. And they grab it and they just say, okay, his side right here in God's word says, anything I ask. Okay, no, let's let's be real clear on what he's saying here. He starts in verse 13, excuse me, verse 12, and he says, greater 
things are coming. Do you think they bought that? He's like, it's going to be so cool. I'm out of here. (laughs) I'm sure they were like, no way. Well, think of it this way. Greater things are coming, not in power, but in extent. Okay? The ministry of Jesus Christ, while he was on the earth, was beautiful and powerful and amazing because we had Jesus. But when Jesus went up to be in heaven at the right hand of God and he sent down the Holy Spirit, who we're going to talk about in a minute, to his believers to go out, it was quantum. It went. The extent of what happened to the ministry of Jesus Christ is documented in the New Testament, but it's crazy stuff. And he's telling them, giving them a tiny little baby glimpse of what's coming. Great works are coming. The second part of that little passage is the part that's confusing, right? In, uh, in verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Important for you to note when it says in his name, when you ask something in his name, you should think of it this way, in pursuit of his glory only. That makes sense. Sometimes, sometimes we knowingly, sometimes we unknowingly are praying for things that bring glory to something other than God's will, other than our God the Father or Jesus, right? Sometimes we pray for things that bring comfort, and sometimes we pray for things that make us um, not have to step outside into a place where we don't want to go, don't we? We all do. He knows our heart. Take, take heart in that. He knows our heart. But when we say the things he asks in his name, he's not saying, I'm going to give you everything you want. He's going to say, I'm going to give you everything you need. That's tough. But that's the beauty of a God who loves us so much. Well, he goes on to say um, that the next thing that we're going to receive when he leaves is the helper or the comforter. I don't know what your Bible said, but essentially it's the Holy Spirit. It's also referred to, he's also referred to as the spirit of truth. And that's in verses 15 through 17. I'm going to read that. And also verse 26, I'm going to jump over there. Verse 15, he says this, if you love me, you will also keep my commandments and I will ask the father and he will give you another helper. I love that. This helper that comes is in response to Jesus praying for us. To his father. Did you catch that? So cool. He says, verse 17, Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You will know him for he dwells in you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit. It's a hard, like we could talk about this for hours. Like we could have like a full conference talking about this. It's a difficult thing to understand this the idea of a Holy Spirit. And, and it's, it's hard sometimes for us to not think of like some lofty ghost that's floating around in the room. That is not who the Holy Spirit is. He is the third person of the Trinity. You've heard the term the Trinity before. And, and I'm going to go very, very shallow here and try to just give us a glimpse so we can understand what he's saying um, you'll appreciate this. This is an aside. All of those who go to Rock Point Church, you're going to love this. So I, yesterday I was, I was um, uh, communicating with Ron, our senior pastor, and I'm like, hey, man, I got to talk about the whole, I get, excuse me, I get the joy of talking about the Holy Spirit. Can you help me? Like, it's, it's difficult to understand. I'm a believer. It's difficult to understand. It's difficult to understand and then say. And this is his encouragement. He goes, yeah, that's hard. Do you have any illustrations or anything? Yeah, I got this one, but it's not very good. Awesome, thanks. It's hard. 
It's hard for our earthly brains to get wrapped around it, isn't it? Well, let me, let me put it this way. The beauty of what's coming for these believers that they don't even fully understand yet is that Jesus is leaving, but he knows the need, doesn't he? He knows that they need him. And so he even asked the Father, hey, can we send the Spirit to be with these believers? And in response, we get the Holy Spirit. Jesus leaves, the Spirit comes. We're going to see it happen later. But he's giving them this, pre, um, this prelude, if you will, of understanding of what's coming. Um, the interesting thing is he uses the term another helper. Did you catch that? There's another helper coming. What does that mean? Another helper, another comforter. It's the Greek meaning another of the same kind. You see, the Holy Spirit is different from Jesus, but also the same. God, the Son, and the Spirit, all are God in three separate persons. It's not that there's three separate gods. It's not that there's one God and this is like, okay, I'm going to cut this into thirds and okay, you get this part of God and you get... No, it's like they are fully God and one essence of God. I heard it described like this. It's one essence but three persons, but I heard it described this way and this kind of helped me a little bit, may not may confuse you more. I am Chris. I am Chris Murphy and I am a wife and I am a mother and I am a daughter, but I'm still me. I'm still Chris, but I am fully a wife and fully a mother and fully a daughter. Three things, one essence. That's what the Spirit is. When he sends the Holy Spirit, he, I love, this is quoted so, so beautifully. It's like, okay, the Holy Spirit does not work instead of you. The Holy Spirit does not work in spite of you. The Holy Spirit works in you and through you. You see, when we accept Jesus as our Savior, and let me clarify something. You may believe that Jesus came and that he was a guy, and you may even believe that he was the Son of God. I don't even know. And you may believe that um, this scripture was written and recorded, and it may have, um, that God may have had a part of it. You may believe all those things, but there's a difference in believing something and believing in something. Did you know? Because you know who believes that Jesus is the Son of God and who believes that Scripture is here and useful and powerful? Satan believed that. Satan knew who Jesus was. Satan spoke Scripture back to Jesus. Crazy. But the difference is when you believe in Jesus and you accept the fact that he says, I am the Son and I came here to live and die because you are sinful and you can't approach God without me, that's when the Spirit comes. And that's what he's trying to explain to them. You are going to receive, because I have to leave, but I'm going to leave you another who's going to come in my place and be with you. For how long did it say he's going to be with us? Forever. So I got good news for everybody in here who messes up. Anybody? Okay, yeah. It's not that you get the Holy Spirit. I accepted Jesus as my Savior. I get the Holy Spirit until I do something real bad. That's not what it says. It doesn't say until you do this, 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 and this. There is no sin outside of the power of Jesus Christ. There is no sin that is unforgivable outside of the Holy Spirit. Outside of turning your back and saying, you know what, Jesus? I get it, but I'm out. I'm not doing that. That's it. That's the unforgivable sin. But the Holy Spirit comes. The idea that the Holy Spirit comes into this hostile world because we need the presence of God here, don't we? The Holy Spirit comes to encourage comes to empower us, and comes to educate us. That's what he comes to do. 
The world, he says, the world's not going to see him. You know why the world's not going to see him? Because the world only sees things that it can touch and feel and control. And the world cannot see that. He takes permanent residence in our souls once we accept Jesus. This comfort that comes is something that is blowing their minds. Now, we've seen mention over the course of the rest of the Bible of the spirit of truth, of the Holy Spirit. It's not like a new thing, but here's the difference. In the spirit in the Old Testament, when we see it mentioned in 1 Samuel, and there's some times that it's mentioned in, in, in the Psalms, that it may come upon people, but then also God, in his choosing, in his timing, can remove that. But once Jesus has come to earth, there's no removal. It's permanent. He's leaving, but he's sending the comforter. Well, the third thing that he goes on to say in verses 18 through 19 is that he is now giving us new life. He mentions in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet in a little while, the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You will also live. He says that you're not orphans through death. You're reunited and you're resurrected through my return. This has got to be a truth that they are sitting. I cannot imagine. Can you imagine the jaws dropping at this moment? Little do they know in John 20, their big things coming. Little do they know in the book of Acts that Pentecost is going to come and the Holy Spirit is going to come upon so many people and the word is going to go out. Little do they know what he knows. There's a new life coming. And the fourth thing that he, we learn in this passage in verses 20 through 25 is we learn that there's this new union through the Father and the Son. We have the Father... We have the Son, and through the Holy Spirit, we're connected. And the last is the fifth thing that he tells us in verses 27 through 31. In some real familiar verses that you may even have cross-stitched on something in your house. I don't even know. But I love the idea that he's going to leave us, verse 27, with peace. But do you see in the second part of 27 what he's leaving us? He's not just leaving us with peace. Do you see that? He's leaving us with what kind of peace? His peace. My peace I give you. Don't, don't miss that importance of that word. It wasn't an accident. You know, the difference is in Jesus' peace is real different than the world's peace. The world tries to sell us a real false sense of peace, doesn't it? All the time. And a lot of times we buy it. I buy it. Jesus' peace, is, it goes like this. The peace that Jesus leaves is fearless. It's fearless. But the peace that the world tries to, pay, tries to sell us, this false peace, it relies on circumstances, doesn't it? I'll be peaceful as long as you do this, God. As long as you, you heal the sick person that I'm having to sit next to at chemo. I'll be peaceful, God, as long as you heal my broken marriage. I'll be peaceful, God, as long as we can finally get out of debt. I'll be peaceful, God. And, and Jesus is like, hey, I don't, I don't need all those things. I can give you peace in the midst of all those things. The second thing that Jesus' peace is, is, is it cannot be snuffed out by the enemy or his plans. Can't be. It's a thing. Can't be. The world's fake peace tells us that we need to be numb or ignorant or medicated, perhaps, I don't know, to face the world. And that that's peace? That's what I need? I don't know. But Jesus' peace cannot be snuffed out in spite of all those things. The third thing is Jesus' peace is unexplainable. 
The world wants to give you this fake peace and tell you that you need to read every self-help book and you need to fix everything and you need all the circumstances to go your way and then you will have this enlightened understanding and then you will be peaceful. X, Y, Z equals peace. Well, here's what we understand about our God is he is too big for that nonsense. His peace is unexplainable. In, in, in Philippians 4, 7, we understand, it, we, we hear, it surpasses all understanding. You know what that means? It means it surpasses all understanding. That's the message version. No, it's not hard. It's supposed to. I'm supposed to not be able to explain it. It's crazy. Something weird happened this week in my, my world. And uh, I didn't even think of it till just now. But uh, usually it takes me like 100,000 years to prepare all this lecture stuff. And I, I get, I'm so weird. You know, I get all spun out. Becky knows. Like she's constantly like, she's like enough with the praying about your lecture. It's, it's, I just get real weird about trying to make sure I have all the words and everything. And, and for some reason this week it just came all together on Sunday night. And that never happens. Amen? Never in zero percent of the time, never. It's Sunday night, I'm never done. And so I really did have this moment like, hey, God, maybe you know something. But I see it's embarrassing the things I say to God. He's like, yeah, duh, I totally do know stuff. Well, then on Monday, this thing happened in my house, and all day Monday, I was gone, and I couldn't touch my Bible. I couldn't touch my computer. I had to deal with all kinds of crazy, scary, weird, circumstantial things, and in the midst of it, I have this weird piece of like, it's cool. God's got this. It's all cool. What? That is not me. If you know me, I am frantic and insane. I am like a Red Bull can. Like, I carry Red Bull. I drink Red Bull, so it's even worse. Peace that surpasses all understanding. Those are the moments where God is like, hey, God, I'm real. Don't forget. He wants to leave us with peace. Well, um, the next stone that he gives us in, um, in this amazing collection, this amazing um, memorial stones and, and Karen that he leaves the disciples and us is that he wants us to remain on the vine and I know that you covered that in depth in your homework, but um, I'm going to go over just a couple of things. But I wanted to share something that I did find that was interesting in a commentary I read. Um, William Barclay wrote about all this, and I thought this was fascinating. If you happen to be a grape farmer, I mean, that's super cool. Anybody a grape farmer in here? Is that a thing? Do you farm grapes? I don't know. What do you do with them? I don't even know. Anyway, whatever. Um, you may already know this if that's who you are, if you have that on your resume. That's cool. So maybe share with us about some things. But um, there is such significance here when we're talking about, um, especially verses 6 and 7, because what we need to understand about grapevines, besides they make really cool wreaths that you saw a lot in the 80s. Anybody alive in the 80s? Okay. Saw that stuff all draped around, right? Well, this is what's amazing, what I learned um, about the grapevine. While other wood is ideal for being cut down and sawed into planks, and used in all types of construction. A grapevine is gnarled and twisted and real brittle, isn't it? It's, 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 it's generally a vine that is good for nothing but fruitfulness. That's it. You can't use it for firewood. You can't, well, you can try to use it for a wreath if you live in the 80s, but seriously, it's really meant for fruitfulness. In fact, in that William Barclay commentary, I said, um, he points out this, that at certain times of the year, the law required people um, to bring wood offerings to the temple to supply fires for sacrifices, okay? So, like, they had to get certain wood and bring it, but it was also known that vine wood was not to ever be brought because it burns too quickly. It has one purpose, 
There's a reason that Jesus uses this particular illustration to share with us what we need to know. Essentially, this metaphor is like the basis of Christian living, if you want to say that. Don't quote me on that. But it really kind of is. Like, he talks about the true vine. Who's the true vine? Is Sunday school answer. There we go. Jesus. That's right. Well, something that you would know, and I know you covered a little bit in your homework, there's, there's three vines that are talked about in the whole course of the Bible and they would have had a familiarity with this, but he says, I'm the true vine because he's clarifying the difference. The old vine would have been, um, the past vine would have been the nation of Israel. We talked about that in homework, I believe. But there's also a reference to a future vine, and that happens in Revelation 14. And essentially that's the Gentile world system that's going to um, ripen for God's judgment. All that stuff that we're not looking at right now. Um, that's later. But he's the true vine, and he wants us to know that there's a difference. The vine dresser, he's the caretaker. God the Father, right? He prunes. No fun. Who likes to be pruned? Let me ask you a question. Who has crepe myrtles in their yard or drives past them ever in your entire life? Okay, thank you. Yeah. Okay, so like, look, can we just talk about this for a minute? Those crepe myrtles would look so pretty when they're blooming. But how about like in the next couple of weeks, we're about to see it happen, aren't we? All the landscape guys are coming, and then you're going to drive past one. You're going to be like, oh, my gosh, they killed it. Because they, like, take it down. And I know there's lots of theories. All you gardeners are like, Some, you're not supposed to go down that far. And Okay, fine. But it's ugly. Amen. When they prune that thing, you're like, gross. Ouch. But what happens? When it blooms, man. And so I'm not even a gardener. I'm the farthest thing from a gardener. I, can, I kill cactus. I'm real bad, but I do understand the illustration. Pruning is essential. And I'm like, good, good for you. <laughs> good, God, go prune them, prune them. But, but I love this quote. Warren Wearsby says this, and I think it's important for us to remember this. And if you're in a season of pruning, you know who you are. Or if you're on the other side of the pruning, if you're the, if you're the crepe myrtle that just got chopped down and you're like, now what? Or if you're all bloomed out and you're like, I'm good. Well, guess what? Shears are coming. Okay, sorry. Very encouraging. This quote is helpful for us to remember. Is that the greatest judgment God could ever bring against a believer would be to leave you alone. The worst thing that could ever happen to you is for him to go, yeah, no, she's good. Oh, God, we don't want that. And I know it's hard when you're right in there and the shears are coming out. You're like, God, don't prune me. I understand that because that's we are human. And then those are those moments we fall on our faces and go back to what we learned before in his name. Lord, okay, if you got to chop me down, chop me down. Just don't make it hurt. If it's got to hurt, let it hurt. Amen. God prunes us this way. He convicts us with his word, doesn't he? And with trustworthy people. You got trustworthy people in your life? I mean, we all got them, those fluffy people that tell you what you want to hear, right? You know when to call them, right? But, but do you got those people that you can call and go, yeah, so this happened, and they're going to go, you owe that person an apology. You need to beg for their forgiveness. You didn't handle that right. Let's go to the Word and see what it said. You got those people? If you don't have those people, and I said it a different way in the, in the evening class, and I said, the, after I said it, I'm like, I'm so glad that didn't get recorded, so I'm not going to repeat it this way. But if you don't have those people, let me say it this way. If you don't have those people that when you put on and something and, and it's not appropriate, <laughs> that they don't say, yeah, no, don't wear that. You need to get people that will tell you not to wear that. You need people that are going to tell you the truth, don't you? He's going to convict us with this word. He's going to convict us with godly, truthful people that he puts in our lives. 
And then he's also going to cut away habits that cripple us. Sometimes those are habits that we don't even see. But little by little, when you trust in the Lord, and I know that I can attest to this, there are moments when all of a sudden it's like a light shined on something like, oh man, I never realized. But he does that. He's going to cut those things away. He removes dead growth. Sometimes the dead growth is real precious to us, isn't it? Sometimes the dead growth might be toxic relationships that I'm engaging in and I walk away and I feel dirty and really bad and I know that it was wrong, but yet I keep going back. He's going to cut those things away. He's going to trim the excesses in our lives and he's going to teach us moderation. Sometimes in real painful ways, right? That's what our caretaker does. He prunes us. Well, we learn in the illustration about the two types of branches, don't we? There's one that's what? Fruitful. And the other one is what? Come on. Not fruitful. That's not that hard. We can do this. Just making sure you're still awake. Fruitful. He, what he means by the fruitful is that this is a true believer that's abiding in Christ. A true believer that's connected to the vine. Okay? The other type, the fruitless type, may actually be a person that professes to believe, but you see no fruit. And remember, we always have to remember this. Okay, well, I'm going to talk about fruit here in just a second. But remember this. It doesn't mean that there's a requirement list of things you have to do, that you have to have a certain attendance record at church, that you have to have told this many people about Jesus, that you have to have a fish on your car, that you have to wear a cross around your neck. There's not like this requirements. But, but ultimately, if you are living a life connected to Jesus, you can't help but be fruitful. It just is a thing. It just happens. All of a sudden, things start happening. You're like, I'm not, I'm not patient, peaceful, or kind. That was not me. That was God. Right? These moments where you realize that's only because I'm connected to the vine. That's only because of God. And so a fruitless person is someone who is not connected. Does that make sense? And so he's talking again to this room of the 11, and he's hoping that they're all the fruitful ones, but he's warning them against what will happen if they fall away, well, the fruit that he speaks of, a couple examples would be you guys covered Galatians 5 in your homework um, where he talks about um, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things we have naturally, right? All those things you're born with? Anybody have a baby? Anybody have a toddler? Very patient, peaceful, kind? Yeah, no, that's a lie. That's not true. We, we, those don't come naturally, the opposite comes real naturally, doesn't it? There's a reason you got to teach that toddler how to behave. There's a reason that we've got to be taught the things that don't come naturally because we are born sinful and we need Jesus. Godly attributes, righteous behavior, praise. Praise doesn't come naturally, does it? How about the times when you're broken and things look like there is no chance that everything's going to be okay and you get Amanda and Christy up here singing something so beautiful and you stand up and you're like, how am I even singing these words? Only through abiding in Christ can we praise in times that seem just hopeless, right? And then also leading others to faith. Romans 1, 13 through 16, go take a look at that. But truly, truly, that is such fruit of what's going on in the life of a believer is when you start seeing people around them start going, I got to know what this girl's about. I got to come to Bible study. The fruit 
of the Spirit, the fruit of being connected to the vine. Choosing to be isolated from the vine is choosing death. And Jesus is telling them that. There's going to come a time where I'm gone, and you're going to remember back to this statement, and you're going to have to remain connected to the vine. Well, I have exactly two minutes to finish this thing up. And I I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe the Holy Spirit's going to take over and do it. Um, The last thing he leaves them with, the last memorial stone he leaves them with is this painful truth that sounds so awful. But in John 15, 18 through 19, he says this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. He's saying to them, the world will hate you too. The world's going to hate you. Do we, are we in a world right now that really does hate us? I mean, come on. That just seems a little, oh, it's a little dramatic, Jesus. I mean, chill. It's 2018. The world doesn't hate us. Let me ask you this. Does the world hate patience, peace, kindness? Does the world hate those things? I don't know. Here's what I know. I know that with my phone, I can do anything in a, in a matter of seconds. I don't have to wait for anything. I live in a 24-7 world. I can order dog food right here, right now, and it'll probably be on my porch when I get home. I don't have to be patient. It's not necessary. I I don't have to uh, be peaceful because there's discord and judgments. And here's the beauty of the way the world works now. I can hate on you in a way that you never even know that it was me and you never even have to look at my face. I can be so hateful and ugly to you and disagree with you and judge you for the things you choose to believe. And I can do it all behind a keyboard. And hit send and then go have dinner with my family. The world doesn't love peace and patience and kindness. The world hates those things. Let's be real. Does the world hate testimony about Jesus as a savior? Okay, do you have an angry agnostic neighbor? You don't bring your trash bins out on time and they're like, sick, Christian. Get all mad. Okay, we all got people in our worlds. I hope, I hope you have people in your worlds that don't know Jesus. I hope you do. Because here's the thing, you are speaking Jesus to them. But do you have a person that you would say, maybe you go up to the guy when you're bringing in your trash bin and you say, so let me tell you about Jesus right now. And do you have like people in your world that are like, yes, tell me more, tell me more. Or does angry neighbor go, I don't want to hear a word of this because Christians have wounded me and hurt me and the church is ugly and angry. And do you have that? The world hates the testimony about Jesus. What about righteous behavior? Do you have um, a world, do you live in a world that only wants righteous behavior to, to be abounding? I don't think so because I'll tell you this, in my life anyway, when I look back at the darkest parts of my life, the things I'm the most ashamed about, you know what I can remember? I can close my eyes and there was always people around me. Rarely did I do those things by myself. Rarely did I find myself in those situations without encouragement. Not saying it's their fault, I'm just saying there's always people in this world that want you to stay down in the slop with them. Amen? The world will hate you. It's truth. It's what Jesus says. And I'm going to finish with this. Um, I read a devotional a few years ago when I did this, and it, it just came up. When I started looking through all this stuff, I'm like, oh, wow, this was so interesting. In the verses of uh, 1 through 4 of of chapter 16, the last one he says, he leaves us with this one piece of information in the message version. He says, I told you these things to prepare you for the rough times ahead. He's preparing them for what's coming. Well, this devotional I had read had nothing to do with the book of John, but it meant something to me, and I feel like it's the best way for us to close. It said this. This is a little bitty part of it. It says, walk in the light with Jesus. Thus... 
When you do, you become a beacon through whom others are drawn to Jesus. Through whom others are drawn to Jesus. I want to be the through. I want to be the person that people look at me and go, what is that that you have? How do you have hope when the world is hopeless? How do you even remotely trust a God when the world is heartless? I want to be a beacon through whom people come to know Jesus. The world's going to hate us. The world's going to hate us because the world hates Jesus. I want to be a beacon through whom they see him. What about you? You got people in your world that have been that to you? You got people who have been the through to you? Do you think the disciples were going to have a bigger impact in the coming days on how they endured and how they were the through during that time? I'm telling you, things are about to get real ugly and everybody's going to be watching. What about you? Are they going to be watching you? He leaves us stones. He leaves us a path. Um, I'm finishing with this verse in in Matthew. And then you're going to run and get your kids. You're going to run fast. But carefully, because it's rainy and we don't want to slip and fall. Um, In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus says this. And I love it. I think it's a perfect way for us to end. He says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. That's the world. That's what the world tells us. But yet... For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. He has left us Karens to find the narrow path. You hold it in your hands. Are you going to follow? Are you going to listen? Are you going to trust? Know the way, have hope, remain on the vine, and be the through. Let me pray. Lord, um, thank you that you give us the truth. Thank you that um, the next sentence that we read is, but now I am going away. To him who sent me. Lord, we thank you that even in the hardness of understanding why you were sent away, that you sent another comforter to come and live with us and live in us and live through us. Thank you that you even trust us with part of who you are. It's, it's humbling and it's crazy and we can't get our minds around it. But Lord, I pray today that we walk out of here knowing you in a deeper way. I pray that we walk out of here. And if we haven't accepted you as our Savior, Lord, I pray right now that in this moment, this girl who doesn't really know and isn't really sure says, okay, I give up. I can't do it. Father, thank you that you love us so much that you brought us to this place to hear this today, to understand who you are, and that you leave us memorial stones. And I thank you for your son. In Jesus' name, amen.